You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, and hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. A philosopher to philosophers, order to orders. You swore when you came to Athens that you'd make this city your own. Athens has always been hostile to foreigners, hostile to women, but you loved this city, loved its sights and its sounds, its sun-drenched streets, its fiery philosophers that gathered in the forum to argue and declaim. You worked the streets with vigor, you went everywhere, you were not afraid. At first it was your body that made you the money, but it was your mind that would not be still. After sex, after meals, after drink, you would stay up all night with your philosopher lovers, debating the world until sunrise. This city would be yours, all of it. You were not afraid to go where other women wouldn't, even to the open forum, where the great men congregated to argue and strut and make laws that everyone had to live by. It was there you caught his eye, Pericles, first citizen of Athens, tall and strong and powerful, a man who led armies and remade cities. You wanted him in your bed. You wanted his money in your hand. So you walked straight up to him and you challenged him on his law, the one that said the sons of mixed marriages, Athenian and non-Athenian, may not be citizens themselves. Have you ever considered, great Pericles, that one day you may love a woman who is not Athenian, and perhaps you would want your children with her to have these privileges? Pericles laughed and said he himself had already had the good judgment to marry an Athenian woman. But the spark between you was undeniable. You got what you wanted that afternoon, and then he never left. He divorced his wife for you, a foreign woman, whose sons would never be citizens by his own law. He moved you into his palatial house, and then it was you throwing the parties, gathering your philosopher friends to you, debating them until dawn. They all wrote you into their dialogues, what passes for love letters in these circles. Pericles looked on indulgently. He could deny you nothing. Together you shaped the city, and there was nowhere you could not go and be welcomed. You got your wish. Athens was yours now. But now your city, the city you made your own, the city you learned not to be afraid in, is crumbling around you. Plague has come. 
The sun-drenched streets are crowded with corpses choking the gutters, abandoned by their families. The people are saying the gods have left us. The temples are crowded with the dead and the dying, lying on the flagstones, huddled in corners, taking what shelter they can find. Pericles' sons by his Athenian wife have died. So have many of his friends and colleagues and many of yours, your philosopher kings you loved and buried with your own hands. Pericles himself remained upright, never cried until the time came to place the wreath on the coffin of his youngest son. It was then that he collapsed by the graveside, the whole city weeping with him. Now Pericles has it himself. The healers say he has not long, days at most. You walk up the hill from the agora, your fist clenched around a charm, a foolish superstition. He would laugh you out of his house for believing in such things, in better times. You risked sickness and death to buy it. The houses lining the streets are boarded shut. There is a dead child lying in the gutter, missing a shoe, eyes blank and open to the sky. Somewhere you can hear someone wailing. Everything smells like smoke from the ever-burning pyres. You do not believe in such superstitions either. But the gods are dead, and your city is dying. If there was ever a time to cling to the tiniest scrap of hope, this is it. He will not want to wear it, but he will not have a choice. You will do what you can to save him. What will you do without him? How on earth will you go on? You cannot think of this yet. You stride up the hill toward Pericles' estate, praying to whatever gods remain that he will still be alive when you get there. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Jeez, so cheery, Jenny. Have I ever written a cheery intro? Maybe once. (laughs) So in our last episodes about Hatire in ancient Greece, we delved into the lives of five famous ancient Greek courtesans, male and female, to tell you what their lives were like. But we left someone out. Perhaps the most famous and elite Hatira of all. The courtesan at the very top of the courtesan game. The top of the top. The most elite and elevated, known not so much for her beauty as for her mind. She's the one people ask about most often when they get in touch with us. People ask us about this topic all the time. So much. (laughs) It might be our top requested episode. It's up there. Yeah, and when we started looking into her life, we realized that there was enough about her to make this its own episode. So that's right, everybody who slid into our DMs in the past to ask about this. Are we going to cover Aspasia and Pericles? Are we? We are. Today is that day. Today, we're covering the glorious Aspasia and her partner, Pericles. Aspasia was a hetera living in the 400s BC. But in addition to being a very exclusive sex worker, Aspasia was a noted philosopher and rhetorician in classical Greece. She ran with all the high-level philosophers that are still famous today. She appears in the writings of Plato, Aristophanes, and Xenophon, all of whom probably knew her personally. She threw glittering salons at which the most prominent philosophers and thinkers of her day were regular guests, including the most acclaimed of all, Socrates, who may or may not have actually existed, but for the purpose of this, he existed. We're just going to go with he existed for now because it's easier. Maybe we'll do a deep dive on whether he existed or not someday. We haven't done that deep dive yet. Today is not that day. Aspasia was also the partner of a noted statesman, Pericles, and was said to be very influential in government policy because of her relationship with him. So let's start at the beginning. Aspasia was born around 470 BC in the city of Miletus. This was a Greek city located somewhere around modern-day Turkey. We know very little about Aspasia's childhood. We know that her father's name was Axiakus, 
and we can surmise that her family was wealthy because Aspasia had an outstanding education. Her name was said to mean the desired one, and it's probably her sex worker name. She probably had a different name that she was born with. We don't know how or why Aspasia came to Athens, but eventually she did, and she came to run a brothel there and work as a hetera herself. Some scholars dispute that she really was a hetera, that she might have been just a really prominent woman, and everyone assumes that prominent women who go places unfettered by men are hetere, but maybe she wasn't. I think it's quite possible that she was. I'm not necessarily making a judgment call on it, but for the purposes of this episode, I'm taking that at face value that she was. Aspasia was highly educated, something most women, even high-ranking ones, were not. She was independently wealthy. Again, most women's wealth was controlled by male relatives, by law in ancient Athens, and we talked about this ad nauseum last time. And unlike more quote-unquote respectable women, Aspasia mixed with men at parties and even threw her own, something that only Hetire in classical Athens had the freedom to do. Aspasia had a level of freedom and independence that was only available to Hetire in classical Athens. As a foreigner, she no doubt felt less constrained by the intensely patriarchal tradition that kept other women in the home. As such, she became part of the public life of Athens, at a time when women were not welcome, as a whole, in the public square. But Aspasia was listened to and admired. People respected her. Yeah, for her mind, Jen. Not just her body. For her brain box! For her gray matter. Eventually, Aspasia met the great statesman Pericles. Pericles was born around 495 BC, which would have made him about 25 years older than Aspasia, if we're taking all the dates here at face value. By the time Pericles became seriously involved with Aspasia, he had been the leading statesman of Athens for roughly 16 years. He was descended from an ancient and influential Athenian family line. He had commanded vast armies to victory during the Greco-Persian and Peloponnesian Wars, and he was instrumental in transforming the Delian League, an association of Greek city-states, into a regional superpower. His word, in classical Greece, was law. He was also a great patron of literature, philosophy, and the arts. It's chiefly because of him that Athens achieved its great reputation of being a cultural center of philosophy and art in the ancient world. His great building projects include the Parthenon and most of the other surviving buildings of the Acropolis, many of which still stand today. He was a great champion of Athenian democracy. His enemies at the time contemptuously called him a populist. Thucydides, who knew him personally, referred to him in his writings as quote, the first citizen of Athens. The whole period from 461 to 429 BC is sometimes referred to by scholars as, quote, the age of Pericles. He was, like, kind of a big deal. He was big man on campus back in classical Athens. He was big man in Athens. (laughs) He had a big dick that he was swinging around all over the place. Oh, God. Yeah, he definitely has that energy. Julius Caesar says, I have the lowest form of wit. That's probably true. Oh, Ms. Williamson, why must a woman who is almost talented bring me into all of your various and sundry discussions that are just crude and low form? The Lady Cleopatra would never stand for it. Julius Caesar, every time you show up in our podcast lately, you sound like more and more trashed. What are you drinking over there? The afterlife is filled with only the best Flarnian, Flarnian, Flarnian. Calling us from a bathtub of it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Julius Caesar, go back to your bathtub of Falernian. Have fun, babe. (laughs) So it's not clear exactly when or how Pericles and Aspasia met. It may have been at a symposium or 
outside in the public square where Pericles was giving speeches and throwing his dick around as you do, and Aspasia was hanging out with her wild gang of philosopunks. I feel like philosopunks and velociraptors should meet and be philosopunk and raptors. Someone should write that sort of weird dystopian dinosaur philosopher fanfic. But Aspasia and Pericles did meet, and they hit it off. And we like to imagine they were both two sapiosexuals who were really into each other's brains. Plutarch says that Pericles loved her, quote, because of her rare political wisdom. Because God, Plutarch, a woman understanding politics? What is this madness? I mean, it's rare that a woman would have political wisdom, just, you know. I feel like it's rare that a woman would have political wisdom in public. In private, I'm sure they had a lot of things to say. Well, look, Plutarch thinks it's rare is what I'm saying. I don't think it's rare. Pericles was already married when he met Aspasia, and it was not a happy marriage. Plutarch tells us that Pericles was closely related to his wife. Maybe she was his niece? Maybe this was an uncle-daddy relationship? He's not that clear. His wife had borne him two sons by the time he met Aspasia, and she also had a son from a previous marriage. But not long after meeting Aspasia, Pericles gave his wife to another man, because that's what you do. But in this case, it was with the wife's permission because she really didn't like Pericles either. She was like, I'm out! (laughs) She's like, yeah, just, you know, give me to someone else. Anyone else, literally, it's fine. Anything would be a step up from having to live with you. Anyone else, Pericles. <laughs> Pericles' wife had had it. So supposedly all, all this drama happened around 445 BC. The dates are a little fuzzy here. Then Aspasia moved in with Pericles. And Pericles would have been about 50 years old by this point, And Aspasia around 25. Because he likes him young, just like every other dude in ancient Greece. Yeah, but surprisingly, not as young as it could be. Yeah, I mean, she could be 13 and she's not. So Plutarch tells us that Pericles' relationship with Aspasia was much happier than with his ex-wife. Shocker. He says that Pericles kissed her every day, both leaving the house and coming back, and loved her exceedingly. Athenaeus, in a less flattering picture, says that, quote, Pericles, after he got rid of his wife out of his house, lived with Aspasia the courtesan from Megara and spent the greater part of his fortune on her. And we've seen it translated um, instead of spent the greater part of his fortune as squandered his fortune on her. And it's not clear if Pericles and Aspasia ever got married. But even if they did, their marriage would not have been legal under Athenian law. At this point, it was illegal for an Athenian citizen to marry a non-Athenian, This, this horrible law, was Pericles' own law, which he'd enacted shortly before he first met Aspasia, because let me tell you, the fates like to fuck with you when you are a xenophobic asshole. Or if you're not even, if you might have even a tiny inclination to sleep with your mom and kill your dad. Well, that too, but I'm just saying, in this instant, like, karma's a bitch, man. Maybe feed your son to the gods, or whatever. Tear your son limb from limb, or, you know... I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. 
So Aspasia moved in with Pericles, I guess shortly after meeting him, the timeline is fuzzy, and they became long-term partners. She had a son with him, also named Pericles, that would be Pericles the Younger, and that son couldn't be a citizen because his mom was a foreigner. That was his dad's own law. That meant he couldn't be a statesman like his dad or follow his dad into public life. Even his dad couldn't or wouldn't pull strings for his own son on that. He probably didn't because he had two sons with his previous wife who could follow him into public life. So Pericles figured his bases were covered there in terms of having illustrious sons and passing down a powerful family line. Pericles got to have his cake and eat it too, having sons that could operate in public life without having to look like a hypocrite by going against his own law. But Aspasia's status as a foreigner, a non-citizen, a hetera or ex-hetera, and a woman did not hold her back. As Pericles' partner, Aspasia quickly rose to the highest levels of the Athenian society. Instead of attending other people's symposia, she threw her own, glittering events that attracted the greatest minds in classical Athens. The conversation sparkled. The wine flowed. All the greatest philosophers, artists, statesmen, and thinkers of the day flocked to Aspasia's salons. It would have been the place to be, the only place to be, in ancient Athens. But Aspasia was more than a phenomenal host who knew all the best people. She was a philosopher herself, an orator in her own right, and a teacher. It was she who taught some of the greatest minds of her time, including Socrates, assuming he was real. According to Plutarch, Socrates so admired her that he counseled his friends to bring their wives to see her so they might learn from her sparkling wit and vibrant conversation. Plato was another admirer. In one of his Socratic dialogues, he has Socrates confide in his friend that Aspasia had taught him rhetoric. There's a scene where Socrates recounts how Aspasia had been trying to teach him a very long funeral oration that she'd written and had been ready to strike him because he kept forgetting. But in his defense, this oration is very, 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 very long, so I can understand. So I guess, like, Aspasia's, you know, education methods involved just hitting people when they didn't (laughs) memorize things. (laughs) she sounds like she was just such a great patient teacher cicero quotes a philosophical tract by plato where socrates is depicted as reporting a conversation aspasia had with the philosopher in general xenophon and his wife so jen is going to be aspasia here and i will be xenophon's wife and then eventually it's going to switch and there's going to be aspasia having a conversation with just xenophon and then we'll switch again so quote Tell me, I beg of you, O wife of Xenophon, if your neighbor has better gold than you have, whether you prefer her gold or your own. Hers. Suppose she has dresses and other ornaments suited to women of more value than those which you have. Should you prefer your own or hers? Hers, to be sure. Come then, suppose she has a better husband than you have. Should you then prefer your own husband or hers? On this, the woman blushed. Then Aspasia began a discourse with Xenophon himself, and this time I'll be Aspasia and Jen will be Xenophon. I ask you, O Xenophon, if your neighbor has a better horse than yours is, whether you would prefer your own horse or his. His. Suppose he has a better farm than you have, which farm, I should like to know, would you prefer to possess? Beyond all doubt, that which is best. Suppose he has a better wife than you have, would you prefer his wife? And on this, Xenophon himself was conspicuously silent. I think the silence speaks volumes here. (laughs) Then spake Aspasia, quote, Since each of you avoids answering me that question alone, which was the only one which I wish to have answered, I will tell you what each of you are thinking of. Both you, 
O woman, because women don't have names, wish to have the best husband, and you, O Xenophon, who has a name because you're a man, most exceedingly desire to have the most excellent wife. Wherefore, unless you both so contrive matters that there should not be on the whole earth a more excellent man or a more admirable woman, then in truth you will at all times desire above all things that which you think to be the best thing in the world. Namely, that you, O Xenophon, may be the husband of the best possible wife, and you, O woman who doesn't get a name, that you may be married to the most excellent husband possible. Neither one will be happy as long as each wants an ideal partner. Instead, each one must be the best partner possible in order to fulfill the other's wish. I don't know if Aspasia actually said this because I think she'd know Xenophon's wife's name. So that's Aspasia's marriage advice. Jen, what do you think as a married person? As a married person, it's it's kind of great advice, right? Think about what she's saying here. She's like, look, if you think that the grass is always greener and that there's someone out there who's even better than what you've got, then you're always going to be striving to get the best person you can get. You're never going to be happy in your relationship because you'll always think there could be somebody better and there always will be someone better because there's always someone better. Exactly. So what she's saying here is you two have to work together to be the best possible versions of yourself for each other. And therefore, you won't want to look at other people because you're both working to be the best version for each other. That's kind of nice. It's kind of smart and it makes sense to me. It's, it's I think, what most marriages aim to do, really. <laughs> I don't think it's, like, totally revolutionary, but I think it's good advice. I think it's a bit revolutionary for classical Athens. Well, true, true. It also gives the woman some kind of agency in saying, like, yeah, you're always going to think there's a better guy. What if this guy just worked on being the best partner for you and you worked on being the ideal partner for him? And then you don't have to worry if there's somebody better because you know you've got the best that you can for your needs. I think from a feminist angle, I like this advice because it's saying, yeah, the guy has to work on himself, too, to be the best partner possible for his wife. He doesn't just get to take her for granted and do whatever he feels like because he's the dude. I think I like that part of it because she's saying, yeah, actually, guys have to try, too, because she might she might have her eye on something better. You don't know. Are you the best possible version of yourself today? Also, have you seen her? She's fucking gorgeous. Like, I'm sorry. You better work on that. She's smart. She's clever. So let's move on. (laughs) Right. In ancient writings by philosophers who undoubtedly knew her, Aspasia appears as a kind of female Socrates, a philosopher to philosophers, order to orders, the kind of thinker that inspires other famous thinkers to rise to heights at least approaching hers. Plutarch said, quote, What great art or power this woman had, that she managed as she pleased, the foremost men of the state, and afforded the philosophers occasion to discuss her in exalted terms and at great length. But not everyone loved Aspasia. Many people attacked and denounced her, especially Pericles' political enemies, who saw her as a weakness to be exploited. People said unkind things about Aspasia's sex work. The comic poet Cratinus referred to her as a dog-eyed concubine. The poet Eupolis referred to her as a whore and a mother to a bastard. I mean... Jeez, is this all fucking necessary? God. Also, like, yeah, she was a sex worker and she has a bastard son because her fucking longtime lover can't marry her because of a stupid law he made that's a bit xenophobic. And whose fault is that about the whole bastard part, at least? Not her fault. 
So other men were uncomfortable with how much influence Aspasia had over Athenian military and foreign policy because of her influence over Pericles. I mean, shocker, a woman having some influence is a terrifying thing. But also I think this is some misogyny where they're assuming that she was influencing Pericles because she's a woman and wouldn't that be terrible? You know, who knows how how much influence she actually had in this area? I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, one much-discussed example of this political influence had to do with the Samian War. This war started out as a conflict between Samos, a Greek island, and the city of Miletus, which was Aspasia's hometown. This all took place in 440 BC, about five years after Aspasia and Pericles got together. The Athenians intervened in this conflict between Samos and Miletus, and the Persians got involved, and it just became a whole thing. And Pericles, as lead general of the Athenian forces, wound up having to besiege Samos for nine months. The Athenians won, but suffered heavy casualties, and this was not a popular war back home. Writers at the time claimed that the only reason Pericles intervened in Samos' conflict with Miletus in the first place was because Aspasia insisted, because Miletus was her hometown. Aspasia was much resented for goading Pericles to commit to this ruinous victory. In the Arcanians, the playwright Aristophanes lays the blame for sparking off the entire Peloponnesian War at Aspasia's feet. The Peloponnesian War was a great conflict between Sparta and Athens and their respective allies. It lasted from 431 to 405 BC, about 26 years. Pericles and Aspasia had been together roughly 14 years by this time. One of the inciting incidents of the Peloponnesian War was the Megarin Degree of Pericles, where Pericles levied economic sanctions against the town of Megara. The reason given for the decree was that the Megarins had trespassed on land that was sacred to Demeter. Then they had killed an Athenian herald who had been set to their city to yell at them about that. And, just to add insult to injury, they had sheltered some slaves who had escaped from Athens. The Athenians were upset at them for all of that, To teach the Megarins a lesson, Pericles introduced harsh foreign sanctions. The Athenians blocked all Megarin ships from all harbors and all Megarin merchants from marketplaces everywhere in the Athenian Empire. The Megarin economy and its people slowly starved until the Megarins got so desperate they asked Sparta for help, and a complicated chain of events fell into place that led to the Peloponnesian War. This was the first use in history of economic sanctions as a tool of foreign policy. Some historians think that wily Pericles had a wider political goal, to deliberately provoke the Spartans toward war while weakening their allies. But the comic playwright Aristophanes tells us that wasn't the reason at all, that the whole story about trespassing on land sacred to Demeter was bullshit too. According to him, Pericles levied sanctions on Megara, kicking off the Peloponnesian War because of Aspasia. In his play The Acarnians, which is his earliest surviving play, written around 425 BC, about seven years after the events in question, Aristophanes tells the story of some rowdy Megarins who visited Athens to do business, got super drunk one night, and kidnapped three sex workers from a brothel owned by Aspasia. Aspasia was so, so pissed. She prevailed on Pericles to make all of Megara suffer, and so he did. Quote, And so for three whores, Greece is set ablaze, says Aristophanes. Awesome. And then here's some more Aristophanes as if that wasn't enough. Quote, Then Pericles, aflame with ire on his Olympian height, let loose the lightning, 
caused the thunder to roll, upset Greece, and passed an edict, which ran like the song, that the Megarins be banished both from our land and from our markets, and from the sea, and from the continent. So, clearly, Pericles, according to Aristophanes, was real, real mad about this, because Aspasia was real, real mad about it. Aristophanes is laying the blame for this at Aspasia's feet, and he's doing it in a comic play that would have run during her time, during her lifetime, so she's being, like, pilloried in this comic play. It's a public attack. And this isn't the only time Aspasia was attacked publicly. For years, prior to the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War, Aspasia had been the target of a number of lawsuits brought mainly by political enemies of Pericles who saw her as a weak spot. In one lawsuit, the comic poet Hermippus claimed that first off, she was impious, a charge that had led to the death of Socrates, assuming he existed, and that would later shake high-profile hetere like Phryne and Nera. And second, she was in the habit of procuring freeborn women to satisfy Pericles' unholy lusts. I feel like you should always say unholy lusts exactly like that because it's so ridiculous. His lusts. <laughs> Hermippus loathed Pericles. He hated that guy. Hated him. He hate, hate, hated that dude. Fucking Pericles. God, die in a fire. I mean, that's that's a bit harsh, Hermippus. <laughs> it's a little bit harsh. Just a tad. <laughs> <laughs> Just a tad. Hermippus called Pericles a coward and a bully in his writings. This lawsuit was clearly revenge for a long-held grudge. Hermippus let loose with a torrent of misogynist, slut-shaming, sex-worker-shaming bullshit at this trial, and apparently the judges ate it up with a spoon like it was delicious, delicious chocolate sorbet. Pericles defended Aspasia himself, and according to Plutarch, he was only able to secure her freedom by shedding copious tears at the trial. Dude wept in public for her. That's pretty impressive. I'm really impressed by that, actually. So, in 429 BC, Aspasia would have been about 41, and Pericles 66. Wow. Gotta love that age disparity. Athens was hit by a terrible plague. Approximately one in four people in the city, about 75,000 to 100,000 people by some accounts, died in the outbreak. The main historical account of the plague of Athens comes from a survivor and eyewitness, the historian Thucydides, who survived the plague where many Athenians died. He got sick too, and he lived through it. His account is riveting, and I'm going to be paraphrasing it here for the next few paragraphs. So, in 429 BC, the Peloponnesian War had been raging for several years. Just to give you some context, Sparta and its allies had been ravaging the land around ancient Athens. Outmatched, Pericles ordered his army and civilians in the surrounding countryside to retreat behind the walls of the city of Athens for their own safety. Then Sparta attacked the nearby region of Attica, laying waste to the countryside and driving a vast influx of refugees into Athens. So at this point, Athens was extremely overpopulated, hemmed in by the Spartan army, and relying on its navy to deliver supplies through its port. With so many people packed in at close quarters and under serious resource shortages, the city became a perfect habitat for contagious disease. The plague first cropped up in the Athenian neighborhood of Piraeus, the port area. Rumors about its origins spread throughout the city. Some said it came from the Attic refugees. Others said it was first spotted on the island of Lemnos, about 227 miles northeast of Athens in the Aegean Sea. 
Still others claimed it came from Ethiopia, spreading from there to Egypt and Libya. Rumors swept the city that the Spartans had poisoned the city reservoirs. But wherever it came from, it swiftly spread to the upper city, where people started dying in droves. Thucydides tells us that the disease hit people hard even when they were strong, young, and in good health. He describes a sudden onset of violent heat starting in the head, inflammation and redness in the eyes spreading to the throat and tongue, and as the disease progressed, mucous membranes would bleed and the patient's breath would start to go fetid as they began to sneeze and cough violently. The cough would soon progress to the chest and stomach, where it got a lot worse. Patients would retch and spasm violently, coughing up bile as they did. The skin would get red and break out into ulcers and pustules. Patients would overheat. Thucydides tells us some couldn't stand to have even the lightest scrap of cloth on them and would tear off their clothes and be stark naked. Some threw themselves into cold water to alleviate the burning sensation or plunged their heads into rain tanks to try alleviating their unbearable thirst, to no effect. At the end stages, the disease took root in the bowels, where it produced horrible diarrhea. None of them could sleep. It usually took about a week for the disease to progress from the head all the way down through the body and kill the patient. Those who didn't die lost fingers and toes or went blind. Others seemed to have experienced dementia and did not remember who they were or who their friends were. For millennia afterward, historians and medical professionals have been trying to make sense of this disease. Some suggestions I've seen include Ebola and epidemic typhus. It does sound a little like Ebola. It kind of does. I mean, I don't know enough about Ebola. I didn't do a deep enough dive into this to have opinions about it, but maybe just based on a casual reading. Yeah, just the casual not having done a massive deep dive into either or, but it's like the pustules and the burning and the fever kind of kind of does. Yeah, and like the mucous membrane inflammations and bleeding through your orifices and stuff. I don't know. Yeah. Doctors at the time were just as useless. None of them knew how to treat the disease. Thucydides tells us that remedies that helped some people only killed others faster. Some died in neglect. Others died despite every effort to save their lives. But nobody died in greater numbers than the doctors of Athens, who would not stop visiting their patients no matter how fiercely the infection raged. Thucydides tells us how society broke down as the plague raged on for months. People stopped making sacrifices and paying for divinations at Athens' sacred temples. Eventually, seeing how the pious and impious died alike, despite anyone's prayers, people stopped believing in the gods altogether. But that didn't stop people from the countryside taking refuge in the temples, as they had nowhere else to go. Soon, every temple in Athens was full of dead and dying refugees. The refugees packed the streets as well and gathered half-dead and dying around the fountains, trying to quench that terrible thirst that the disease brought on. Bodies lay everywhere unburied in the streets. Birds and animals refused to touch the bodies. In fact, Thucydides says most birds and animals fled Athens altogether. Relationships broke down. People trying to nurse sick loved ones to health were gripped by the disease themselves and died soon after. After a while, most people started abandoning sick friends and loved ones at the first sign of sickness, as caring for them was too risky. The rule of law broke down. As time went on, Thucydides tells us, people began committing crimes with impunity, stealing property that had once belonged to wealthy citizens, now recently dead. Nobody believed they would live long enough to be punished for their crimes. And nobody saw any point in saving money anymore. So many spent their entire fortunes like water. 
Nobody cared to make investments or maintain an honorable reputation. What was the point? We're all likely to be dead tomorrow. Funeral rituals broke down, the usual traditions overwhelmed by the sheer number of dead in a city. Dead bodies were piled in the streets, left to rot, dumped on massive funeral pyres, and buried in huge mass graves. The Spartan army, once menacing the countryside, saw the huge fires rise up all over Athens and pulled back in fear. That was the good news. The bad news is that many of Athens's most experienced sailors and soldiers died in the plague. In all, it's estimated that about one in four people in Athens, about 75,000 to 100,000 people, died in this plague, which I already said, but I'm saying it again because it's still true. It's still true, and it's so many people. It's horrifying. I mean, this is just a nightmare scene. The family of Pericles and Aspasia did not escape the plague unscathed. First, Pericles' sister died, followed quickly by his son, Xanthippus, one of the sons he'd had with his ex-wife. Pericles had quarreled with Xanthippus before his death, and they never had a chance to make up. Pericles was so distraught that not even Aspasia could pull him out of his grief. But the deaths continued. Many of Pericles' friends, longtime associates and loved ones, political allies and enemies, died in quick succession. Plutarch tells us, quote, He did not, however, give up nor yet abandon his loftiness and grandeur of spirit because of his calamities. Nay, he was not even seen to weep either at the funeral rites or at the grave of any of his connections. Until finally, Pericles' younger son, Parlus, his second son with his ex-wife, also succumbed to the plague. This was the death that broke the great man. Plutarch tells us, quote, Even though he was bowed down at this stroke, he nevertheless tried to persevere in his habit and maintain his spiritual greatness. But as he laid a wreath upon the dead, he was vanquished by his anguish at the sight, so that he broke out into wailing and shed a multitude of tears, although he had never done any such thing in all his life before. Except maybe at Aspasia's trial that time, and also when his first son died. I don't know. Pericles isolated himself in his grief, and Athens tried to go on without him. The Senate, or what was left of it, kept meeting. But there was no one left who had the authority and gravitas to make decisions. Athenian statesmen yearned for Pericles, according to Plutarch, and a group of his closest remaining friends begged him to come out again and help them govern. Pericles responded to the call. He quit his isolation and went back to the Senate. And one of the first things he did was request that the law that had said children born to a foreign parent, his law, the law he'd enacted right before meeting Aspasia, be suspended. It's easy to see the self-interest in this. Pericles wanted to make sure his son with Aspasia, Pericles the Younger, the only son he had now, could carry on the family line when he died. And Plutarch tells us how heavy an ask this was. Quote, The circumstances of this law were as follows. Many years before this, when Pericles was at the height of his political career and had sons born in wedlock to his first wife, he proposed a law that only those should be reckoned Athenians whose parents on both sides were Athenians. And so when the king of Egypt sent a present to the people of 40,000 measures of grain, and this had to be divided up among the citizens, there was a great crop of prosecutions against citizens of illegal birth by the law of Pericles, who had up to that time escaped notice and been overlooked, and many of them also suffered at the hands of informers. As a result, a little less than 5,000 were convicted and sold into slavery. It was, accordingly, 
a grave matter that the law which had been rigorously enforced against so many should now be suspended by the very man who had introduced it. And yet the calamities which Pericles was then suffering in his family life regarded as a kind of penalty which he had paid for his arrogance and haughtiness of old, broke down the objections of the Athenians. So you know what this reminds me of, Jen? It reminds me of all those prosecutions that happened during Sulla's time and then during the Second Triumvirate. Show your work. No, I'm going to show my work. It's not about um, being killed so much as being sold into slavery, but all of a sudden there's this new law. All these informers are coming out of the woodwork to get rid of enemies they had or people whose houses they covet or whatever. And when they were found to be violating the law, they would get sold into slavery and all of their belongings would be taken from them. It just seems like this opportunistic prescription-like behavior that rose up when Pericles enacted this law where 5,000 people were sold into slavery over it. And now he's like, oh, wait, just kidding. Just kidding. I wasn't thinking. I I thought it through after 25 years or however long it's been. And we're going to forget that. We're going to scrap it. Here's something non-relating to Pericles that is a reason why this should have been scrapped post-plague, right? Let's think about how grossly unjust and unfair this law is. Anyone who is born of a non-Athenian parent can't be a citizen, right? This is awful. They've lived there their whole life, okay? Now let's say one in four people in Athens has died of the plague. So that means two-thirds are still left. But the people who are left potentially may not have an Athenian parent. Like Pericles the Younger, they may be left to carry on this family line. So from like an actual just how do you rebuild this city, you kind of need to get rid of this fucking law so that you can have new citizens. No, I absolutely agree. I think that's really true. And that's a way Pericles could have sold this without bringing his own personal shit into it. But maybe that's just not how people saw it. I'm sure that's not how they saw it. I'm just like from a social like, how do we help the people who are here? We get rid of a law that unfairly keeps people out of being able to have the rights and things that they need to support themselves and their families. Now, of course, this fucking benefited Pericles and every other asshole guy who had a second family with a Hatara and wasn't, you know, claiming them as their kids because foreign wife or whatever. But yeah, I mean, it's some dark ass shit. And this really makes me dislike Pericles so much. Mm, Your hypocrisy is noted, Pericles. But also it's a shitty law and it should be repealed anyway. It never should have gotten passed, but xenophobia is real, kids. The Athenians agreed to suspend this law because Pericles had been seen to suffer so much grief that it was somehow okay, despite the fact that 5,000 people were once sold into slavery over this. As a result, Pericles the Younger was now considered a legitimate son and a citizen. It was Pericles' last gift to his remaining family and to the community at large, because not long after this, Pericles caught the plague himself. Plutarch, again, has a very colorful quote, and there is no quote from Plutarch that is not colorful. Quote, At this time, it would seem, the plague laid hold of Pericles, not with a violent attack, as in the case of others, nor acute, but one which, with a kind of sluggish distemper that prolonged itself through varying changes, used up his body slowly and undermined the loftiness of his spirit. Pericles, as he lay sick, showed one of his friends who had come to see him an amulet that the women had hung around his neck, as much to say that he was very badly off to put up with such folly as that. Pericles died not long after, and Aspasia was cast adrift. It's not clear what happened in her life after, how she managed without her partner of so many years, what she did with her grief and trauma after losing so many friends and loved ones. Plutarch cites a now-lost dialogue from Ascanes that claimed Aspasia moved in with a guy named Lysicles, the sheep dealer, a man of low birth and nature. 
Lysicles did well out of his relationship with Aspasia, however. Eventually, due to Aspasia's influence, he rose to the rank of general and the first man of Athens himself. She also had another son with him, according to this account. At this point, she may have been in her early 40s. Lysicles died in battle in 428 BC, just a year after the first wave of the plague of Athens ended, which I guess that would mean that Aspasia would be like 41 or 42, if we're believing the dates. And that's where the record of Aspasia's life ends. We don't know if she still lived when her son, Pericles the Younger, was made a general in 406 BC. She would have been 64 at that point. And we don't know if she lived to see him executed the same year after a sea battle in which he didn't stop to pick up survivors whose boat had been wrecked in a storm. That's why they executed him. Historians give the year of her death as 401 to 400 BC, but this is extremely speculative. So that is the much-requested story of Aspasia and that guy who kind of loved her, Pericles. A cheery tale. You know what I like about this story, Jen? I like that it kind of incorporates a lot of elements from all of the sex workers that we talked about in our previous episode on this, like all the other famous sex workers, you know? Like Rhodopis, there is a kind of a fairy tale element of this with Aspasia attracting the attention of the king of Athens, basically, like the reigning the reigning daddy of Athens. Yeah. Like Nathena, she's witty and sharp, and she's known for hanging out with her high company. Like Nathena, she threw her own party. She was the boss of those parties. And like Phaedo, she inspired philosophers. She was a philosopher to the philosophers. She taught philosophy. She had people hanging on her words and her ideas. Yeah, she ran with the philosopher set, just like Phaedo. And also like Nira, she got dragged into all these asshole lawsuits. Yeah, I mean, she really is kind of the perfect reflection of all of them. Even Phryne, like, there's a mystique about her, isn't there? What I came across with Aspasia was definitely less about being alluring in general and more about her mind and how brilliant and witty she was. But that's also, you know, there was definitely a very high level of mystique. She was Pericles' long-term partner. Everybody thought that she had a hand in all the political machinations going on with Pericles. She absolutely had this massive reputation that may or may not have had anything to do with the real person. Like Phryne, she had a legend around her. That's it for this week. Join us for another installment of whatever we're talking about next. We don't know because this is all weekly and we haven't mapped everything out like we do in big arcs because they're all one-offs. Isn't it fun? Isn't it great? We don't know what's next. But in the meantime, join us on social at Ancient Histfan on Twitter and at Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram and Facebook. Also, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. For as little as $2 a month, you can get regular episodes a day early and ad-free, plus extra special bonus episodes. And we don't have any Patreon members to thank because we thanked them all in the last episode. So thank you so much, and we will see you in a week. Oh.